You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Buddy, and please leave that passage in Revelation open in front of you. We're just going to be doing what we always do and just tracking through it a verse or two at a time, seeing what God has for us this morning. Just uh, before we jump into this passage, I just want to remind you about last week's message, just because... Uh, as I said, we're sort of laying the table for the, the feast that we'll be enjoying for the rest of this year as we work through this book. And so if you weren't here last week, uh, I think pretty much everyone was here last week because we kind of ran out of chairs. But uh, if you weren't, um, we still love you. And, uh, and just please um, just jump onto our website and, and have a listen to the audio or, or the, watch the video if you can, uh, because I just think that's really important groundwork, and we just obviously don't have time to go back over that uh, time and again. Um, If you don't have time to listen to the whole thing, we do have a series guide that you can pick up out in the foyer, which does some of that background background context. So uh, we are going to jump into uh, Revelation chapter 1 and beginning at verse 9. Let me just remind you about the three kind of big ideas that I'm hoping we will absorb as we go through this passage, okay? So not three ideas to get your head around merely, three ideas to understand intellectually, that's great, but to absorb into your soul. This is what I'm hoping for. This is what I'm praying for, and you need to know that because all through this series, I'm going to be coming back to these three things, all right? So number one. Number one, our willingness to radically live like Christ and suffer for Christ is the path to ultimate victory over evil and injustice. The way of the world, that is what what John refers to as Babylon, the great city of the world, the city of injustice and oppression and worldliness, the way of the world is the way of power and dominion The way of Christ is life, death, and resurrection. You need to know, if you're here this morning and you're following Jesus, you need to know where you're following him, all right? You're following him into life, death, and resurrection. Rather than the roaring lion of Judah, God's victory is secured by the lamb that was slain. So, number two. God is absolutely sovereign, that means supreme, ruling, unrivaled, over human history, even when darkness seems to reign. Even when the world feels like it's falling apart all around us, or even when it feels like the world is going the way of Babylon, or that Babylon actually is the sum total of the world that we live in, even then, God is absolutely sovereign. There is no inch of creation over which Jesus does not say, mine. The schemes of Babylon and the dragon, that's Satan, are powerful and pernicious. So both powerful, like overwhelmingly powerful to us, and pernicious. That is, they're kind of subtle. They, they spread through the world like yeast through dough. They're hard to track. But God's plan for the redemption and final restoration of his people cannot fail. 
Three, the new creation is the climax of the entire witness of Scripture. So you pick it up in Genesis, and all through, the climax that it's working towards is the new creation. The destiny of everyone who remains faithful to the Lamb is new creation, restoration, new heavens, new earth. Revelation is a book very much rooted in this world. You'll you'll know that from last week. It's rooted in this world. It's written to seven churches in the first century. It speaks of many things that happen in the first century, if not through human history. It has much to teach us about this life now. But the final vision, chapter 20, verse 7 through to the end, that final vision of the new creation is that's the ultimate goal of this book. It's the ultimate goal of Scripture, the ultimate goal of God's work in human history, new creation life. So it's very much a now and not yet kind of book. And we, we live in that tension, and this book lives in that tension. So those three things. If you don't get it right now, then the plan is over the 15 weeks that we're going through this, that's what we pick up and absorb. Jesus' word in scripture, we're going to see today, is like a two-edged sword. And so our prayer for each one of us, and we're praying this for you, okay, whether you like it or not, our prayer is that you would be sliced open sliced open so that God's word can actually take root in your hearts. So, let's get to it. There's a lot to do this morning. So, we're going to jump right in. Verse 9 of chapter 1, follow along with me. I, John, that's the author, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island island called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So let's pick up the map again. We've got a map of the ancient Near East, uh, Western Asia, what we call Turkey now. This is small, I know, but if you've got a guide, you'll have a bigger version of it. You see uh, the seven churches of modern Turkey, the seven churches of Asia Minor. That's who he's writing to. Jesus tells him, "Send, send this to them. And that little, little island, about, uh, I think it's about 60 k's off the coast, is Patmos. That's where John is. That's where Rome sent their, the, the Empire of Rome sent their political prisoners and gen- generally people that were irritating them, uh, that they didn't kill, right? The few, that, the few that they didn't kill, they sent to Patmos to be exiles um, because being that far from the coast means unless someone gets you off the island, that's where you're staying. All right, so that's John's situation. Church tradition tells us that he lived in a cave. He wasn't in a prison, but he couldn't go anywhere else. And uh, he says he's there for two reasons. He's there because of the word of God. So John, a preacher of the word of God, uh, which is opposed to the empire of Rome. One of John's most frequent teachings was that Jesus is Lord which is in direct opposition to the teachings of Rome, who say Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the Son of God. So you go against Rome, you end up dead or 
on an island somewhere, and that's what's happened to John. He's preaching the, preaching the word, and so he's off on an island. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we tend to think of testimony as something that someone does when they get up and tell, tells you how Jesus has saved them. That's a fine use of the word. But here, testimony means something a little bit different. It's where we get the word martyr. Someone who testifies to Jesus in spite of the danger, in a sense. They are bold in telling people about who Jesus is, testifying to who he is, what he's done. A lot of them ended up as martyrs, witnesses. So he's preaching the word of God. He's telling everyone about who Jesus is, and that's what's put him on Patmos. And that's why he can say, I'm a partner in the affliction. Not just the kingdom and the endurance or perseverance in the faith, but affliction. Remember, he is writing to suffering people, persecuted people, people not like us in that respect. I know that all of us are going through stuff, and some of it is great, a great deal of suffering, but these are people who are being put to death because of their faith. Some of you have come from places around the world where that is the case, and we have much to learn from you, particularly as we try and understand the people that this book was written to. They are people like that, afflicted, persecuted, because of the word of God and the testimony, the witnessing of the Lord Jesus. So here's what happened to him. Verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. That's what happened to him. It's Sunday, Lord's day. By this time, late late first century, Christians are worshipping on Sunday. It's a new thing. It's a thing they're very much into because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And on that day, John says, I was in the spirit. He has in this book, it's pretty much you can divide Revelation into four visions. They're not equal by any, by any stretch, but they're four, four distinct visions. And each time, he, you can tell when he's about to start a new vision because he says, I was in the Spirit, or the Spirit took me to, to show me. So here he's, he's in the Spirit. This is just an, an overwhelming presence of God that sort of envelops a believer and enables them to see visions or speak words of prophecy, speak in tongues, an overwhelming, yes, we always have the presence of the Spirit with us. In fact, today in, in, on the church calendar, and I know we're not big into this, but it's Pentecost Sunday, right? It's the day we remember where Jesus gave his Spirit to the church, and the result was They were bold in preaching the gospel. Heaps of people came to faith. They spoke in tongues. They had these overwhelming experiences of the Spirit. And that's what's going on for John here. It's something actually that all of us should yearn for. It's probably something that all of us feel a little bit weird about. But it's something Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says that all of us should eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that we would prophesy. So something that we should yearn for, this experience of being in the Spirit, and that's what happens to John. He's sort of overwhelmed by the presence of God, and he sees the first vision, and the first vision is a vision of the reigning, ruling, risen Lord Jesus. We'll get to that. Let me just read verse 10 and 11. So... 
He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So that's the charge he receives and that's what he does. Remember, we've sort of set the context for this book as a, well, yes, as an apocalypse, that is a revelation, an unveiling of Jesus by Jesus. Yes, a prophecy, a, a word of exhortation, a call to faithfulness and obedience. And yes, a letter written to real people at a real time, first century Turkey. So I love what this, is, this, this quote I'm about to read you from Richard Borkham sort of explains my approach to this whole teaching series. He says, once revelation is properly grounded in its original context, first century Asia Minor, real people, real churches, real suffering, real John, once it's properly grounded in its original context, it is seen to transcend that context and speak to the contemporary church. This is kind of what we believe about all scripture. We need to understand the original context, the original intention of the first author and the first audience. John is not writing about the war in Ukraine because both John and his audience would have said, and what is Ukraine, right? They don't, if we try and just paste over John's revelation, things happening in our own context, we fail because the people who he is writing to wouldn't have no, no idea. Like, for example, I've heard it said that these weird beasts that we're going to meet a little bit later on, they're like scorpion uh, locust monsters, um, has been interpreted by people, like good people I know as, as helicopters. Um, helicopters in the war in the Middle East. Um, no. No, because neither John nor his audience would have any idea what a helicopter is. Okay, so that's a way for us to filter our interpretation of these images. Now, once we've established the context, we can then read from Revelation truths that echo throughout history, truths that are always timeless truth about the nature of God and evil and the church and salvation history, but we need to start where John starts in the context that John lives in. So he writes to these churches, churches of real people, people who are really suffering, and that's why, zooming out, you can see a theme through the whole of this book is an exhortation, encouragement, stay faithful to Jesus. The one who remains faithful will inherit eternal life. Next week, we're going to look at what Jesus says to these seven churches, and you're going to see that theme over and over again. Stay true. Remain faithful to your first love. We'll get to that next week. All right, so that's who he's been told by Jesus, by King Jesus. He's been told to write to these churches about what he sees. Now, what does he see? This is verse 12 to 16, the the vision that he sees. So I'm going to read this, and then we'll break it down and and see what he sees. Okay, so let's go to... Oh, before we see that, actually, yeah, thank you for the prompt. 
Um, Jesus gives us a little key to understanding two of the images at the end of the passage. I'll just bump it up to the front so that we know before we see them what he's talking about. So verse 20, it says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers, same word, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he's just given you a little key at the bottom of the illustration, a little caption. Lampstands equals churches, those seven churches in Asia Minor. And the stars are the messengers or the angels of the seven churches. I don't know what that means exactly. There isn't great sort of agreement in the scholarship about this. Um, there's, there's two main views, and you can pick whatever seems right to you. One view is that these are just angels. It's exactly what it says on the tin. These are, each church has an angel, and Jesus wants, to, uh, wants John to send this letter to that angel as representative of those churches. I don't know how that mail system works exactly, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the most natural reading of the text, right? It's, he said angels, and it's about angels. Others will say the angels are... It's sort of a play on words because angel just means messenger. So, um, so the messengers of those churches are the pastors of those churches or bishops. And so he's to write to the leaders of those churches. You, I mean, take your pick. I don't think it really doesn't change the message. Um, so see what you think. I think I've put in the study guide that they're, they're probably just angels. I'm not actually that sure about it, so... Um, I'm happy either way. Um, so, he's, he's to write to the church and tell them about this vision. The stars are the angels or messengers and the lampstands are the churches. So, let's read it. Let's see what he sees, what Jesus reveals to him. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands churches. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars, angels, messengers, in his right hand. A sharp, double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. That's what he sees. That's John's first vision in this book of Revelation. Now, let's just break it down so that we can sort of have... um, bite-sized chunks that we might be able to digest, all right? So, first of all, let's begin at verse 12 and 13. Then I turned and to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I saw, uh, sorry, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. He sees first the churches, and then among the churches, 
the Son of Man. Remember Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself in his earthly ministry was Son of Man. And so he sees Jesus there among the churches. Praise God. May it be so for us. It is so for us. Jesus standing among his people. But unlike John's experience of Jesus, if this is indeed the John, the disciple of Jesus, uh, his experience of Jesus in his earthly ministry was of a wandering, poverty-stricken, homeless rabbi. But this is different. It's one like the Son of Man, but now he's dressed in a robe with a golden sash. This is what you need to know about Jesus. We no longer ought to picture Jesus in his earthly ministry, marginalized, poverty-stricken. We should remember him the way that he was and emulate him the way that he lived, but he is no longer that man. He is the risen, reigning, ruling Jesus. He stands with a robe around him and a golden sash. This is sort of reminiscent of uh, both two things, the priests of the Old Covenant and the kings of the Old Covenant. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. You get that all in this text. The prophet who speaks with a double-edged sword. The priest who's robed, and, and here's the thing, not only is, is he the priest who makes sacrifices for his people that they might be reconciled to God, but he's also the sacrifice itself. He's the priest who sacrifices himself. We're going to see the lamb that was slain in a couple of weeks' time. So he's both prophet and king, robed, golden sash. He is unrivaled. You're going to see two weeks' time, he sits on a throne. He's the king. Prophet, priest, and king. So John sees Jesus and sort of recognizes him as the, the man that, 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 that lived and died and rose again, but now he is glorified, something that all of us have in our future if we trust in Jesus and stay faithful to the Lamb. So among the churches is one like the Son of Man. And uh, he goes on, verse 14. We get more of the picture. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. Remember, we said this last week, this whole edifice of the book of Revelation, the whole building, if this, if this church is the book of Revelation, the, the foundation, the solid foundation on which it's built, and the thing that sort of holds it up and holds it together is the Old Testament scriptures. John is just saturated, dripping with Old Testament scriptures. One of the reasons we probably fail to understand the book of Revelation very well is because we don't know the Old Testament very well, but John did. His first readers did as well. And so here we have this, so much of this imagery is Old Covenant imagery. And in Daniel chapter 7, this is what we get, and it's, you can just see the connections. As I kept watching, Daniel says, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head was the whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. His, its wheels were blazing fire. 
John is picking up on that image and he's deliberately connecting it with the Son of Man, which would have been shocking to many of his readers. Why? Because Daniel says it's the Ancient of Days that is like that. God himself, God our Father, Yahweh. And John says, yeah, that's Jesus. We went through this all through the I Am series, right? Jesus taking upon himself the identification of Yahweh. And so it is in John's vision. The Ancient of Days and the Son of Man are one. And he says of his hair, it's white like wool, white like snow. Again, this is Old Covenant imagery about not only referring to like wisdom uh, and discernment, but also purity and holiness. In the book of Revelation, you get a whole bunch of numbers that have meaning, and you get a whole bunch of colors and images that have meaning, and you're going to see that white is the color of purity, white is the color of completeness, of holiness. And so it's appropriate that Jesus himself uh, is, it sort of demonstrates his holiness through this vision of the, the color of his hair. Now, we'll get more into this later on where there's more white imagery, but I feel like in our context, I probably wouldn't do this in my previous church, but in our church, it's important for me to do this, right? Just a little cultural explanation. Um, the Bible makes white the color of purity. It's In essence, it's all of the colors brought into one. Makes white. Completeness and holiness, purity. And that idea, which is very powerful and meaningful and should never be changed because of our culture, but that has zero correlation with the color of your skin. I feel like, I could be wrong, the historians might correct me, but it may be that over church history, white people may have just appropriated this imagery for themselves a little bit, which is nonsense. But it's worth saying because I have had one conversation with someone who had very, very dark skin who at least intimated to me that I was somehow spiritually their superior because of the whiteness. Now here's the thing, I am not white at all and neither are you. Right? There is no, I mean with the exception of, oh, I won't name names, but some of us are very pale. But if you, if you saw a car driving past that was this colour, you wouldn't say, oh that's a white car. You'd say, oh it's, it's, a, it's a weird color, like peach, beige, depending on the time of year. <laughs> I used to be quite brown before I became a theologian. Um, it's outside from time to time. The white that the scriptures refer to here is actual white. It's blinding white. It's it's, it's so white that you can't look at it white. Not a single stain or freckle or pimple or, or, or shade. Apart from that, I mean, going back to our first century context, these people didn't know white people, right? So just it fails on every count. 
<laughs> Let's keep going through the vision. Verse 15. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters, right? The feet thing, the bronze feet thing, it picks up a little bit, it's riffing a little bit on like the, the, the pagan statues of the, of the old, like the, of the, the, the people of Israel, the, 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 the kind of people they came into contact with would make these statues and say, this is God, and their feet were always made of something really like solid, like bronze, and it's meant to demonstrate power. Uh, John is sort of riffing on that. It's, it's what the Jews did a lot. They were like, oh, you've got a God like that? Oh, well, this is what our God is like, and he will crush your statues under his living bronze feet. There's something about what your feet are shod with that, that says something about your strength or your power. Jesus' feet are shod with, uh, are made from bronze, and not just bronze, but like bronze that's burning, white hot. Here's an illustration of this, right? This is, this is just for free. What, it's a bit like, like what, what, you, what, what your feet, um, how kind of uh, solid your feet are, says something about your strength. So if you're at the beach and you see a bunch of just jacked dudes walking down to the beach, just ripped, just there, just there for show, it's always amusing when they first hit the hot sand and just watching them do their little like, ballet dance because it, it, it just like, it, it emasculates them. No, no one with strong... No one who is strong has to dance on hot sand. Jesus, not only are his feet solid, but they themselves are burning and will burn everything else. It's a picture of judgment. It's a picture of power. And his voice, his voice is like a cataract of water. It's like a waterfall, cascading waters. He speaks and it's like you can't hear anything else. I've been to both Niagara and Victoria Falls in southern Africa. I've stood in front of those just immense demonstrations of power. You cannot feel big standing in front of those waterfalls. You can't feel big. You don't feel powerful. You feel very small and your ears hurt because of the sheer sound, the force of those cascading waters. That's what he says Jesus' voice is like. He speaks and it thunders with power. Finally, last thing he sees, verse 16, he had seven stars in his right hand. A double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. I love that image of the sword coming from Jesus' mouth. Again, this is imagery, right? This is not, this is not what Jesus looks like. This is a vision of Jesus that tells you something about who he is. 
this might be a tenuous link and might only speak to those of you who are a little older, but you know, you know um, it was much more popular a couple hundred years ago, or at least a hundred years ago, but there used to be this real art in newspaper cartoons. Um, like cartoons would be, particularly political cartoons, and the cartoonist was an artist who specialised in knowing what was going on in the political agenda of the day and could draw. You had to have both. Um, and the way that these cartoons were drawn were that they were designed to be over the top. They were like everything was um, magnified. If the guy had a slightly big nose, he would have an enormous nose, right? Um, Donald Trump, you know, you've seen the cartoons of him. It just picks up on every little in eccentricity about the man, both his appearance and his manner, and puts it on a page. And instantly when you look at it, you're like, ah, yeah, I get it. And the book of Revelation, not to draw too fine a correlation, but, you know, it's similar. All of the visions, actually, in the, in the scriptures serve a similar purpose. They, they visualize and magnify truths in ways that um, ensure that we don't miss it. Jesus, with a double-edged sword coming from his mouth, it can only give us one message. That is, Jesus' words are powerful. Jesus' words are powerful, and his words are the only weapon he needs. John writing to churches who are being oppressed by the, the dominion of Rome, the, emperor, the empire of Rome, Roman soldiers, the legions, world famous for their ability to use a sword and shield. Jesus stands there not with weapons in his hands, but angels. The only weapon he has is his words. Not only are they powerful like a waterfall, they are sharp like a double-edged sword. Jesus' words have the capacity, the, the ability to slice through us. Not like a Roman legionary, but like a surgeon. Jesus' words are the only weapon he needs. That's why we so, in this church, we so prize the scriptures, the words of God. We believe they don't just have authority over us to tell us what to do, but they have authority to change us, transform us, make us more like Jesus. That's what's going on right now, if you, in case you missed it. This is not a seminar. This is a demonstration of God's power, like coming to us through a very, very weak and vulnerable conduit, but nonetheless, God's power. His face was shining like the sun, not just the sun, not just the sun like today. That's pretty feeble. No, the sun at full strength, you can't look at it because of its brilliance, its glory, its magnificence, its holiness. Glorified Jesus. 
the kind of being that one day we will all be, made perfect, restored, without wrinkle, spot, or stain. This is a picture of Jesus that all of us should have in the forefront of our minds. I just love the fact that this morning we gather to worship a Jesus for whom nothing is impossible, a Jesus who is without rival, without rival in the spiritual realms that we can hardly see or only very rarely see, without rival in the the world that we live in with all of its power and pomp, a Jesus without rival, not even the dragon, Satan, can lay a glove on him. He has a word in his mouth that will fell the dragon. You thought all the stories of knights killing dragons was like a medieval thing? It's not. It's a Bible thing. It's a Jesus thing. We don't sing it here too often, but maybe we will. There's a hymn written by Martin Luther, the great reformer. It's called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Here's what he says about us and the world, Satan and Jesus' words. All right, He says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's good. That's the vision that John has of the risen, ruling, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. That's the God we worship. That's the God whose word we're listening to right now. The question I have for you this morning... This is what I want you to linger on, maybe chat about over morning tea. What do you do? How would you respond to seeing that vision of Jesus? It's something worth dwelling on as you consider the day that's coming, the great day, the day of the Lord, when you'll see Jesus face to face. What are you going to do? Me? I'll tell you what I've been thinking about a lot recently. I've been thinking a lot, a lot too much about all the questions I'm going to put to that guy. Like, what the heck were you doing? Where were you? particularly because I believe he is that ruling, reigning, risen prophet, priest, and king because I believe he's all of those things, that he's without rival, because I believe one little word would fell all of his enemies, I want to ask, what's going on? 
Why aren't you sweeping in and doing something? That's what I think when I consider world events. That's what I consider when I think about my own existence. What would you do? What would you say? How would you respond? I'll tell you how John responds. First part of verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Yeah. I might like to think that I have all of these questions lined up for Jesus and maybe some advice about how to do better next time. The only thing I'm doing is falling at his feet like a dead man. Conscious of the fact that if it wasn't for his grace, I would be a dead man. A forever dead man. I fell at his feet like a dead man. No bow or curtsy. No pleasantries, the kinds of things we do before contemporary kings falling at his feet that are burning bronze like a dead man. That's the appropriate response. I tell you what, if at any point in any service in this church, a service of worship, which has at its center a vision of the risen, ruling, and reigning Lord Jesus, if at any point during any worship service you fall on the ground like a dead man or woman, I will say amen. That's a good way to go. And yet, I'll tell you something that John loves, if indeed this is the Apostle John, something he loves in his gospel and in his revelation, something he loves is when he sees something or when he expects to see something, and then he sees something very different. You get this all throughout John's gospel and through this revelation, this apocalypse. He expects something, and then God just turns it upside down. And so this will happen over and over and over again. Expects to see the lion of Judah, and he sees a lamb that was slain. Right? It's the same here. I fell at his feet like a dead man, like I am finished. I deserve to be consumed. And then yet, this is what happens. The rest of the verse, we're nearly done, all right? Jesus laid his right hand on me, his his hand of power, the hand that holds stars. He, He lays his right hand on me and said, you say it. You say it again. Don't. Be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's the grave. I hold the keys of death and Hades. The first thing he says to John is, don't be afraid. 
take in the vision of this magnificent, sovereign king, unrivaled, undefeated, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'll say this. If you read this book of Revelation and your main emotion as you read, particularly when you read about beasts and battles and dragons and martyrs, if your main emotion is fear, you're reading it wrong. The first thing he says to John before all the rest comes is, do not fear. Don't be afraid. If you fear Jesus, if you honor Jesus, you worship Jesus, you have nothing to fear, though beasts and battles come. The prince of darkness is grim. We tremble not for him. There is one who makes us tremble, the Son of Man. And even then, he says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one, capital L, capital O, living, ever living, never not living again. Yes, I died, but now look, I live. I just would love us again to absorb this word from Jesus. All of these words are words from him and are useful for us, for our training, our transformation. But I would love us to hold on to this promise, to hold on to this promise and wield it like a sword of our own as we come up against the obstacles and tribulations of this life. So, Listen, this applies to the day that they tell you that it's cancer and it's terminal. Do not fear. I hold the keys of death and the grave. This applies to the time where it's just one of those days. Tomorrow's Monday, you know that? That's why you all look so sad. And life is hard, and you've got a job that you don't like, and you're just turning up so that you can put food on the table, most of which costs about twice as much as it did this time last year, right? All of these stressors that we experience, which aren't being crucified on a Roman cross or thrown onto an exiled island, but they're still things that trouble us. They're not diminished because other people are going through more. This is happening to me and it's hard. At that point, Jesus looks at you and says, little child, do not fear. I am the first and the last. I was here before your troubles started and I'm there afterwards. I've got this. Jesus says, I've got this. Beginning and end, first and last. The marriage that's disintegrating, the children that have turned away from you, the illness that eats away at your flesh, the anxiety, 
that drives you to distraction, the depression that completely shuts out the light, including the light of Jesus' face. In all of these things and throughout all of our lives, Jesus says, do not fear. I am the first and the last. I hold the keys of death and Hades. And his promise to every one of his followers is that though we die, he will unlock that prison and set us free for forever. That's Jesus. That's the vision of Jesus we're given. That's the Jesus we worship here. That's the Jesus who we are making all of our life all about. Because how could we not? How could I go back to obsessing about the minutia of my, I don't know what, my calendar, when that being exists in the universe and over the universe, and he loves me. He loves me. He's with me. He's got this. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this vision that you gave to John. What a privilege for that man. Thank you for his faithfulness in writing it down, sending it to those churches. Thank you, God, for the miracle that you have preserved this text for us. 20 centuries later and we're still reading it and you're still working through it. Lord, we trust you. You're our great king. Please continue to speak to us even through broken conduits. Please continue to speak to us by your word, for your glory, for our good. We pray for the children now again. I thank you, Lord, that they are learning from the book of Revelation and have been, even as we've been doing our own study, I pray that this book would speak to them, open their hearts and minds, help them to love you and to fear you so that they fear nothing. Make this a church full of worshippers of the living King. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for blessing us this morning. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for never leaving nor forsaking us. We trust you. We expect great things from you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take some time now to respond to the word.